going to read from Mark 16, 14 through 18. Later, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will get well. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words that you have preserved for us, for our hearing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you rescued us out of darkness, pulled us into your marvelous light. You pulled us out of the miry clay. You set our feet on a rock, and now our feet stand firm. But you didn't just save us from something. You saved us for something. Lord, use my words, as limited as they may be, and inspire by the power of your Holy Spirit, action in each of us. Let us not just be hearers of your word only, but doers also. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gifts, the many, many gifts represented here in this room, people watching online, people just outside. Thank you, thank you, thank you for calling us to be a part of this holy, holy calling. In Jesus' name, amen. In the mid-1980s, uh, my family lived in a little town called Albany, Georgia, and we actually lived in a duplex right next to another awesome, awesome family. Some of my best memories as a kid were living in this duplex. We had just moved uh, from Florida to this place, and uh, there were kids throughout the whole neighborhood, and my parents did an amazing job of making our little duplex, our little backyard, the hub for the whole neighborhood. Kids loved to come to the Posey's house. We were, uh, so my little brother and my two sisters and I were always outside playing. We had bicycles and scooters and skateboards. We had a trampoline. We had a little basketball goal. We had a big barrel. Anybody have a big barrel full of all kinds of sports equipment? That's what we had. Footballs and soccer balls and basketballs and tennis balls and rackets and the whole thing. And people love to come to the Posey's house. Well, one day, my dad comes and he just, he comes home and he blows our minds because he has a family tent. We had never been camping, and so we're going to go camping in the backyard. So we helped Dad build this tent, and the neighborhood kids start swarming, riding around on the bicycles. What are you guys doing? What are you doing? Oh, you got a tent. Oh, wow. Are we gonna, what are we going to do? So they all come over, and we all start making our schemes and our plans. What are we going to do? We're going to have a camp out in the backyard. One kid stays longer than the rest. Rat tail Tommy. Tommy is the quintessential 80s kid, the cool kid. He's got a Schwinn bicycle with pegs. He's got the coolest hairdo, like a, a cool mullet fluffed on top, big, long rat tail in the back. My mom thought that the hairdresser messed up and she started coming at him with scissors and I said, Mom, what are you doing? She's like, I was just going to help him out. 
Tommy didn't know Jesus, but he loved the posies. Tommy wanted to spend the night in our backyard for this camping night. And so I said, Dad, hey, Dad, can Tommy spend the night with us? Can he, he, he wants to go camping with us. Can Tommy go camping with us? And Dad sighed, and he said, man, he said, Stephen, um, I don't think so. You're talking about rat tail, Tommy? He's got a skull and crossbones on his skateboard, right? That, that guy? I don't think Tommy knows Jesus. I don't think Tommy's a Christian. Unless Tommy's a Christian, I, I don't feel comfortable with him spending the night with you. I said, okay, okay, okay. So I go outside and I talk to Tommy. Hey, Tommy, come here. Hey, come on in. Come, you want to hang out in the tent with me? Okay, come on in here. Tommy, close your eyes. Repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus. What, what are we doing? You want to go camping with me? Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus. Tommy was my first convert to Christianity. The Apostle Paul says, whether in pretense or in truth, I rejoice that the gospel is preached. I don't know what your relationship is with the Great Commission, but down through the years, I have had a love-hate relationship with the Great Commission, if I'm honest with you. Third generation preacher's kid, I have heard Great Commission sermons over and over and over again. And I had heart-soaring stories where I got to lead guys on my basketball team to Jesus. I got to be a part in high school of praying for our local high schools during the summer and seeing uh, dozens of people come to Jesus in our local high schools. But I also had missed opportunities. Uh, a guy named Dustin Mock was my brother's double partner, and he had been over to our house countless, countless times. He'd seen the way our family was. He liked our family, but I never had a Jesus conversation with Dustin. One day, Dustin was hanging out with some friends way out in the boonies, and they were drinking, and they weren't even 16 years old yet, but, you know, that's how it goes out in rural South Georgia. They jumped in a car. A deer jumped out in front of them. They veered off the road, and Dustin died. And I always wondered, did I blow it? I carried a little bit of Great Commission guilt. What is your relationship to these words of Jesus? Does it send your heart soaring? Do you think about going into all the world? Do you think about the ways in which you've participated in the gospel going out, whether through ascending capacity or being sent? Do you think about the, way, the people that you have led to Jesus or the, the, the church that you're a part of that has reached so many people over the years? What is your relationship to these words of Jesus? Today, I have a very simple message, and I want to talk to you about the good news of the Great Commission. The good news of the Great Commission. I mentioned to you Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. 2,000 years ago, almost two millennia ago, Jesus looked at his disciples, 
And he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and whoever believes will be saved. The Great Commission has catalyzed tens of millions of Jesus followers to share their faith over the century. If you're sitting here today, I want you to think about this. If you're sitting here today, it's because someone took those words of Jesus, someone who heard those words of Jesus, took those words and told someone about Jesus. And that generation told someone who told someone who told someone many, many generations down until someone somewhere cared enough to tell you. This morning on the way into church, I saw um, a father and a son walking into one of our beautiful local Catholic churches. They were dressed to the nines. The son ran up the stairs and tried to open the door, and he couldn't open the door. It was too heavy for him. And so the dad walked up and opened the door. To me, that's a picture of what happened to me as a little kid. My dad opened the door of faith for me. He preached the gospel to me as a little kid. Many of you, that's your story. Someone in your family, a parent, an uncle, a grandparent, told you about Jesus. We stand here downstream of these words that have power in them. Many vulnerable Exploited and abused children have been rescued. Millions of hungry have been fed. Desperately poor communities have been resourced. Water wells have been dug. Education has been provided. All in the name of the Great Commission. All because Jesus said one two-letter word, go. And we went. Still, some Christians feel guilt. When we say we're going to talk about the Great Commission, some people feel just a little bit guiltier, a little bit uncomfortable about this idea. Am I doing enough? Have I done what I'm supposed to? Have I missed opportunities? Are there people in my life that went on to the next life without me sharing the gospel with them? What is your relationship to the Great Commission? And here in 2022, still, some people look back and see the dark side of people who acted in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Great Commission, but there were unintentional consequences of well-meaning Christians whose efforts caused complications or even harm in parts of the world. What did Jesus mean when he told his disciples to go? We're going to work back through the text for today, but before we do, let's take a moment and stand in awe of the one who gave these words. Here we are. We've been working through the gospel of Mark. We have seen, we have heard Jesus teach. We have seen him do miracles. We have seen him uh, crucified, and we have now seen him raised from the dead. So here stands before us, the resurrected Jesus is the one speaking these words. For 40 days, and in front of hundreds of eyewitnesses, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared. While he was on the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22. You remember Jesus quoting this? Anybody here remember this? What did he say? He cried out and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, 
Lama Sambaktani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But do you know the end of Psalm 22? It says this, verse 27. The whole wide world will remember and return to Yahweh. All the families of nations will bow down before him. For to Yahweh, rulers of nations, belongs to kingly power. All who prosper on earth will bow down before him. All who go down to the dust will do reverence before him. And all those who are dead, their descendants will serve him, will proclaim his name to generations still to come. And those will tell of his saving justice to a people yet unborn. And it says this, he has fulfilled it. Words spoken in faith, which Jesus said in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is fulfilled or it is finished. In addition, the gospel of Mark has used this glorious son of man language through the words of Jesus. Jesus' favorite term for himself was son of man. Remember what Daniel 17, 714 says of this son of man. On him was conferred rule, honor, and kingship, and all people's nations and languages became his servants. His rule is an everlasting rule which will never pass away. His kingship will never come to an end. This Jesus is the Jesus that is standing in front of these disciples. This resurrected, already but not yet king is standing in front of these disciples before he gives his commission. Ephesians 1, says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, which is us, the fullness to him who fills everything and in every way. This Jesus stands crucified and risen. He walks through walls and says, Shalom, y'all. And he invites them to touch his wounds, to examine his resurrected body. He shares meals with them. Apparently, resurrected bodies are hungry bodies. Jesus ate a lot after he was resurrected. Maybe with no calories, you know? Maybe you can eat all the carbs you want. I mean, that's, that's, my, that's my idea of heaven. That's my idea of the new heaven, new earth. So let's jump back into our text and see what this Lord of all, the one who will reign over all nations, the one to whom God gave all authority is standing in front of them. What does he say to these disciples? Verse 14, later he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at table, he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the author has portrayed the male disciples specifically of Jesus, the twelve. You know, we, we want to make them heroes, and, and eventually they were, but not while they were Jesus' disciples. They got it wrong in every possible way. When you read through the Gospel of Mark, you see them fail over and over again. And not only did they fail in their action, they failed in their wholeness. 
They're no longer whole. They're no longer 12. They are 11. 11 in the, number, in the, in the narrative of Scripture has some uh, symbolic power. It's the number of chaos. And here, the Lord of all, the Lord who spoke to the chaos in Genesis 1 and created an order of that tohu vavohu is now speaking to them. And what is he saying? He's inviting them to repent. Yet over the next few decades, these same flawed, incomplete men would turn the world upside down. Many of them would go to their death, uttering the name of the resurrected Jesus on their lips. They would go to their death because Jesus said, go, and they went. Frederick Dale Bruner says, Jesus' grace precedes, accompanies, and follows the disciples' obedience. It goes before their obedience, it accompanies their obedience, and it follows their obedience. The indicative of Christ's strength goes before, alongside, and after the imperative of the disciples' responsibilities. We are also are covered, supported, and surrounded. Mission with all these aids can be very exciting. Before Jesus ever told you to go, he gave you his grace. Before he ever invited you to share the gospel, he empowered you. Verse 15 says, then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Bruner again says, just as the Shema, you remember the Shema? The Shema is the Hebrew prayer that they pray daily for centuries. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That prayer. He says, just as the Shema was the Hebrew Scripture's fundamental legislation in short form, so now the Great Commission is our fundamental legislation. It's in short form. The church that Jesus sends into the world, notice this, us, we, are also 11-ish, he says. Imperfect, fallible. Yet, think about this. The Lord of all, the future king, stands in front of this motley crew of 11 people and gives them his authority. If I were writing this story, this is not how I would write it. If I were empowering a group of people, it would not have been this group of people. But I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. Jesus takes the imperfect number and gives it a perfect vocation. For we learn from the Great Commission that a disciple is given, is to be given a real ambassadorship to the nations. An office comparable to, I want you to think about this, the dignity of Old Testament prophets. Jesus is giving the dignity to these undignified people, the same dignity that was given to Jeremiah and to Isaiah and to Moses. He says, go. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And these signs will accompany those who believe, verse 17 says, in my name they'll drive out demons, they'll speak in tongues, they'll pick up snakes, and if they drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will 
get well. Side note on this thing. Any of you tempted to pick up snakes, okay? Any of you think we're going to become that kind of a church? Okay, good. We don't have to say much about that, okay? Can I just tell you, in Acts chapter 28, you want to read about this actually happening? That actually happened. The apostle Paul was picking up firewood. He gets bit by, by a venomous viper. He shakes it off. The people think he's cursed, but then he doesn't die. So then they think he's a god, and he preaches the gospel to them. This happened. These things have happened, okay? But we also don't tempt God, okay? So that's all I'll say about this. The Great Commission is in each of the four Gospels. Now, many of you know that this part of the Gospel of Mark is what we call bracketed. It's like the longest footnote in the Gospel of Mark or in, in the Gospels, in the New Testament. Uh, most scholars, most Jesus-loving, faithful scholars acknowledge this was not a part of Mark's writing. Mark, the, uh, the author of the Gospel of Mark most assuredly did not write these verses. A faithful scribe in the next century wrote, these, wrote this in, best we can tell. It's not in the original uh, 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 or the earliest manuscripts, but it's in all four Gospels. Why would that scribe do that? I don't know. But it's in our Bibles. It's in the Bibles that you grew up with. And, uh, and so we are preaching it today. We're living our lives according to it because it's in, the Great Commission is everywhere in Scripture. So we're going to talk about this and take it seriously. Matthew chapter 20, pardon me, 28 verses 18 through 20. Uh, we see Matthew's version. Um, and it says this, and Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes when they first heard these words, okay? First of all, what is a disciple? Well, Jesus didn't, actually didn't invent disciples. Discipleship was a part of the ancient world, just like apprenticeship is part of the modern world. If you want to become an electrician, you got to become an apprentice first. You want to be a plumber, you got to be an apprentice first. You want to be a carpenter, you got to be an apprentice first. Same thing, same principle is true back in the first century, back in the ancient world. But Jesus didn't invent this. This was part of Hebrew tradition. It was also part of Greek tradition. Plato and Aristotle also had disciples. So what is the goal of a disciple? Well, if you grew up in the first century or in around Jerusalem or part of the diaspora, if you were a Jewish person outside of Israel, you would have learned the Torah. Anybody know what the Torah is? First five books of the Bible. You would have, in fact, memorized the first five books of the Bible before you were 12 years old. And also probably the Psalms and the Proverbs and much of the Hebrew Bible. Then you would have, at the end of your time in school, which was typically attached to the synagogue, you would go before the rabbis and you would ask questions. Only the most elite, only, this is like making it into the NBA draft. Only the most elite would have the rabbi turn to you and say, follow me. And you then would be a disciple. What was your goal? What would be your goal? Well, in the first century, the goals of 
uh, following a rabbi were pretty simple. The first goal was to be, it's a euphemism, to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. What does that mean? Wherever your rabbi goes, you go. Covered in his dust. Wherever, he, wherever a rabbi go, would go, rabbi was typically 30 or, or older, and disciples were typically teenagers. They would, be, they would follow their rabbi. Wherever he would go, they would go. They would follow him into the bathroom. Why? To see, did he pray certain prayers before he would go to the restroom? Everywhere he went, they went. Covered in the dust of the rabbi. It was a, it was a blessing. May, they would bless one another. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The second goal was to become like your rabbi. You're following this, this rabbi so you can become like him. And the third goal of apprenticeship or discipleship to a rabbi was this, that if you were the elite of the elite within those group of disciples, someday your rabbi, if Mike is a disciple, your rabbi would say, Mike, go make disciples. You'd go make your own disciples. That's the goal. Be covered in the dust of the rabbi, become like your rabbi, and then have your rabbi look at you and say, go make disciples. We say it a little bit differently around here. We say the goal of discipleship to Jesus is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, or to go do Jesus-y things. The Great Commission is a Jesus-y thing. And so the disciples were standing in front of Jesus, and this is the moment but right before he speaks to them and gives them this gift, he has to correct them. I went to a private university in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was very expensive. Uh, in fact, my senior year, my parents told me, I, I just don't think this is a good idea. I don't think you should go. After some prayer and after some pleading, they finally let me go. It was a Christian university. And I just wanted to be around people who love Jesus as much as I did and wanted to go change the world. And that captured their hearts, and they said, we don't know how it's going to work, but go for it. We'll take on some student loans. Go for it. It's going to be expensive. We trust God's going to help us take care of this. My junior year, I was home for Christmas, and I got into a huge argument with my brother. My brother's three years younger than me. We are so competitive with one another. For the first time in his life, he could beat me one-on-one -on -one in basketball. So I beat him physically for beating me. No. <laughs> but we, no, we did. We got into a big, big fight. And we came inside. And I had no idea what conversation my dad had just had. So my dad is correcting me. He's correcting my attitude. He's correcting my relationship with my brother. And thereby, my relationship with God. But then right after he corrects me, he gives us the good news. Hey, Stephen, a man in our church found out about our, your situation. He paid for the whole thing. He paid for your entire college. He's paid for the next year. He's given you a little stipend, so uh, you don't have to work anymore. I felt amazing and terrible all at the same time. I can't help but think this is what the disciples felt like. They had been... Living in unbelief, Jesus corrects them and then says, go make disciples. He invites them, in spite of their failure, into this high, high 
calling. I think when I think about the Great Commission or when any of us think about this high calling, it is ennobling. It's a heart-soaring calling. We think, yes, I want to be a part of this. Yes, I want Jesus to see something in me in spite of my failures and say, come, follow me. We want to be a part of sending. We want to send and we want to be sent. But then life happens. It doesn't go the way we think it will go. Sometimes we feel like we fall short. William Irvine says there's a danger that you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a, quote, bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that you are on your deathbed, you look back and you realize you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various distractions life has to offer. Yet Jesus looks at those of us with that fear and says, follow me. And then after we follow him, he looks at us and he says, go. Go make disciples. Wherever you are, whatever your gifts are, whatever your intellect is, whatever your network of relationships is, no matter what your net worth is, Jesus looks at you and he says, go. No matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what you have done or not done, Jesus looks at you just like he looked at the imperfect 11, and he says, go. So what is the good news about the Great Commission? Well, the good news first is that Jesus gave this command to deeply flawed, imperfect people, and that hasn't changed. I'll say it another way. If you're not ready, you're perfect. If you're not ready, you're perfect. If you're not ready, Jesus is looking for people who are not ready. Are you willing? Do you want to follow Jesus? Jesus says, go. Well, the question, I think, then remains, how? How do we go? Let me just give you a couple of practical things. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it talks about doing uh, what, anything you do in word or deed, do with all your might. So the gospel has a word implication and a deed implication. Guess who's not the only one on the hook for that? The professionals. We're not the only one. Now, I hope you do invite your friends to church. I do hope you invite people who are far from Jesus to come be a part of a local church. They can attend for as long as they want. They can come check us out. Do you know that's actually the first thing? The first move in becoming a Great Commission Christian is that. Do you talk about the fact that you go to church to people who are far from God? Many of you do. I've had conversations with you. I actually have to do the opposite. 
I have to be friends with someone for a long time until they say, hey, what do you do for a living? And then I have to break the news to them, and then they're embarrassed, and they apologize for cussing so much and all the dirty jokes and all this stuff. But then they, I've had it happen twice since I've been in Santa Barbara at a coffee shop where someone said, can I come to your church? I was like, well, we'll see, we'll see. You just keep asking, and we'll see. It's as simple as that. Have you mentioned to the people that you work with, the people in your life that you're part of local church? The second thing is this. When you're going through a difficult season and maybe you're sharing that difficult season with a friend, mention your Christian faith. I know this is elementary, but for some people, you need to hear this. Have you just simply mentioned, you know, this has been a difficult season for me, but my Christian faith has been an enormous resource to me in this season. And then just leave it right there. See if they ask more questions. You see, I think the reason many of many Christians don't participate in the Great Commission in their, their the concentric circles closest to them is a couple of reasons. Many, many studies show that the first reason is that we feel inadequate. What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? What if they ask you a question that you don't know the answer to? Well, Mark chapter 13, Jesus said the gospel must be first proclaimed. And when they bring you on trial or deliver you over, that's what it feels like sometimes when you're having a Jesus conversation with somebody. Don't be anxious, Jesus says. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. It goes with the second thing. I think the second reason people don't share their faith is because they're afraid. They feel inadequate or they feel afraid. Why would you feel afraid? Well, you feel like if I start down the path of that conversation, I might not know what to say. And really the fear underneath the fear is a God fear. What if God doesn't show up? What if he abandons me? We you know what Jesus just said. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Can I just relieve the tension for you? Who does the conversion? Who does the saving? Who does the rescuing? Not you. All we do is participate. Faithfulness is the goal. As we pray, I want to invite the worship team to come on up, lead us into worship. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you preserve these words for us. And Lord, we want to be faithful. Lord, I don't know every story represented, but I do know that if someone is here or within the sound of my voice, it's because you have called them or you are calling them. You're calling all of us. I know that belief, Lord Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, is not just a one-time thing. It's a, there's a progression to it. You, these things were recorded so that you might believe, and by believing, we might have faith. Lord Jesus, in this time of worship, we just offer ourselves to you. We just ask you 
to speak to us even now. Lord, even right now in this moment, Holy Spirit, I know that there are people in our lives that are far from God, that you're drawing unto to Jesus. You're drawing unto God. Would you show us the kingdom work that's already happening? Would you nudge us? Would you give us a name? Would you give us a step? Would you prompt us what to do? And Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would continue to lead us in this week. For the people that we love that are far from God, that we've been praying for, would you send laborers? For the son or daughter that's lost or that is deconstructing their faith, Lord Jesus, would you move in that situation? Would you move into that space and draw them unto you through inadequate, flawed people who are just simply willing to say yes? Lord, that's us. Have your way among us. In Jesus' name.